So far in John, we have gone through the epilogue, the prologue, epilogue. We've been through the prologue, and in the prologue, we saw that it was kind of an introduction to a play, kind of like the the narrator telling us what's going to happen, the background information. That was verses 1 through 18. It's everything we need to know as the curtain opens and the play begins. And the first one on the scene was John the Baptist, right? As the play begins, the curtains open, John the Baptist is the first one. And what does he do? He introduces Jesus to us. And we saw virtually every name for Jesus in that first chapter was introduced to us. The King of Israel, right? A host of other names. And so now that he's introduced, behold your God. (laughs) He comes on the scene. The story begins. And Jesus, today, we're going to witness his first miracle. Now, this miracle is where he instantaneously turns water into an abundance of really good wine. The best wine. In so doing, he takes a very bad situation and unexplainably transforms it into a great situation. And you can't help but read this and just be thrilled at the story. Be thrilled at the miracle. Be amazed at what Jesus can do. Be in awe of the greatness of it. But what I want you to understand at the very beginning here, that this is much more than a miracle. If all you get is what a great miracle, then you've missed everything. Some people, that's as far as they're going to get today, sadly. The most they will get is what an incredible miracle. Kind of like when you're reading uh, the news and you're hearing about something amazing that happened, and you left just with this nostalgic amazement. How did that happen? That's amazing. And that's as far as it goes. It's kind of a a, a sort of entertainment. Right? You see, this is a miracle with a purpose. And it's actually called a sign. So we need to ask, What is the purpose of this miracle? If this is to do us any good today, we need to understand what the purpose of the miracle is. And so I want us to be directed all the way to verse 11. Because verse 11 is going to help us understand this entire story. It's the basis, the lens through which we're going to understand the story and the miracle. And we're told the purpose of this miracle in verse 11 is this. The purpose of the miracle is to manifest his glory. That's the purpose. The purpose of the miracle is that you might see the glory of Jesus manifested before you. And this is likely the reason why John never calls the miracles miracles. What does he call them? He calls them signs. You see, a miracle is just something that is unexplainable that someone accomplishes to human understanding 
un, something we cannot accomplish or explain in our own ability, and it makes no sense to us. It is some impressive display of power that is beyond our comprehension or ability. But a sign indicates that there is a deeper purpose. A sign points beyond itself. A sign points beyond itself to a deeper reality. And a reality that requires faith, eyes of faith to see what that reality is. And so this is, don't call this a miracle. This is not just a miracle. This is a sign. And John never calls them just miracles. He calls them signs because they point to a greater reality. And that greater reality is to manifest the glory of God. But have you ever wondered, when you look at these signs, if there is one greater sign than any other, why do we have the lesser ones? We know what that greater sign is, right? The death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ on the cross. Remember, Jesus made this clear to the religious leaders who asked Jesus for a sign. And he said, no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. And he was referring to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's what he's referring to in kind of a veiled way. That is the greater sign, greater than all other signs. So why these lesser signs? Why, why not just go to the big one? <laughs> why go through these lesser ones? Why little glories when big is all we need, right? And the reason is, I believe, because ever, every lesser sign is pointing to the greater. And so you might wonder, how in the world do these lesser signs point to the greater? And there's a few ways we can know for sure that every sign is going to point to the greater. Every shine is going to, every sign is going to show forth the nature of Jesus Christ. That he is the one who is powerful enough to save us. You can be assured that every sign is going to do that. They point to the cross in showing us that Jesus has the power to save. Every sign is going to foreshadow the work that he will accomplish through his death and resurrection. Every sign is going to give us a foretaste of what awaits us in the kingdom of God. So they show his power. He is able to save they show us what he does on the cross, a picture, a symbol of what he's going to do on the cross, and they show us what awaits us in the eternal kingdom. So every sign is pointing to the greater sign. And if we're to understand it, it's manifesting the glory of God, which is ultimately displayed through the cross. An example of this would be when he heals the sick. You see his ability to heal the sick, that he will take away your sickness, the greater sickness of your sin, through the cross, and that there will be no more sin, no more sickness of sin in God's kingdom. And so every time you see sickness, you're seeing the cross. You're seeing it pointer to the cross of Jesus Christ, the greatest of all signs. So the question is for us is how do you know after today, after we've looked at this, how do you know if you've seen his glory? Isn't that what it's all about? How do you know if you've seen his glory? Because that's what matters, doesn't it? Otherwise, we're going to go home and it's going to be meaningless, right? So how do you know if you've seen his glory? And the answer is, you know you've seen his glory if you believe. You know you've seen his glory if you believe. And that looks like repenting 
in turning to him and following him. The tragedy is that many who witness these miracles with their physical eyes and hear them with their physical ears, many do not really see them. Few people actually believe them. So we need to pray. God, open up my eyes to see. My prayer for you today is that you will see the glory of God manifested as Jesus displays who he is and what he has come to do through the first of his miracles. So first we come to the background that sets the stage for a manifestation of God's glory through his miracle. And really, this background is, like I said, going to set the stage so that you will see God's glory. And what I want you to see that is most important here in this background is that Jesus is an obedient son. All right? I want you to see that in verses 1 through 5. And so the scene begins with a wedding. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. Now, when we think of wedding celebrations, what comes to our minds? Well, probably eating, drinking, rejoicing, happy times, fun, hopefully. In some ways, the weddings of Jesus were very similar to our weddings, but in some ways, they were also very different. Like today, they were a time of great celebration, but it's kind of like a celebration of ours on steroids, right? Um, if we think of our wedding celebrations as something great and worthy of celebrating, theirs was much, much more. <laughs> they were the ceremony of all ceremonies to the Jewish people. This was the biggest and the grandest of their ceremonies. They were so great, in fact, that they could be held for an up to an entire week long. That's a long time. <laughs> And because of how great these wedding celebrations were, they were often viewed, viewed symbolically as a picture of what awaited them when the Messiah in his kingdom would come. Just like a wedding, the coming of the Messiah was expected to be this celebration of overflowing wine, of great food in abundance, of celebration, of great joy. And so they would see it as a wedding. That's how they would understand it. His coming would be the greatest of all wedding celebrations that's ever come about. In fact, in the New Testament, we see many wedding images used symbolically to describe the coming of the Messiah and his kingdom. For instance, and I'll just give you one, Mark 2, verse 19. Jesus said, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? He says, no. And they would have understood, right? This is a time to celebrate, not to fast, it's a time to celebrate the Messiah is with us. So what is significant, what is really significant here is that Jesus is present at the wedding. All right? Now I, I just say that, it's obvious, but sometimes it just doesn't come to our attention. The significant part in verses 1 through 2 is that Jesus is there. The only difference between this and any other wedding is that Jesus is present at the wedding. The veiled incarnate deity was there at this wedding. 
Now imagine for me what you might consider the worst case scenario at a wedding. We are told here that during the wedding celebration, the worst case scenario happened. They ran out of wine. Now we probably don't think of running out of wine as being the biggest problem at a wedding. But if we're to ever understand how big of a deal this is, we need to understand what it was like in that culture and how significant the wine was for a wedding. <laughs> and apparently the groom family, the, the groom's family, was responsible for all the provisions of food and wine. And so imagine that they would have to prepare for up to a week of provisions. That's a lot. You think uh, your wedding was stressful and difficult? Imagine having to prepare for a week, potentially. To run out of supplies would have been a great social embarrassment. It would have been very embarrassing and shameful. And you have to remember, this was a shame culture. And so you would have been put to shame for your failure to provide proper hospitality if you were to run out and to do your duties. And it's not like today where you can just run to the grocery store, right? <laughs> just run to the grocery store and buy some more food. You are stuck. It is also significant that the wine would symbolize the blessings and abundance that would characterize the coming kingdom of God. It's not just the wedding celebration, but it's wine itself throughout the Bible that symbolizes God's blessing and the coming kingdom that he was bringing. And that language is used throughout the Old Testament to describe the future coming kingdom of God and what it was going to be like, the blessings of God. Amos 9 verse 13, for instance, says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes who sows the seed. The mountains shall drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. Imagine mountains flowing with wine. That's what the coming kingdom was going to be like. So running out of wine here, though, you need to understand what this means. When they ran out of wine, it was not just shameful, was it? It was also a picture of the spiritual condition of Israel under the Old Testament covenant. They are missing the key component they need to celebrate, right? The Messiah is not here. The Messiah is not with them. The Messiah is the key component that will give them something to celebrate. And those who are looking forward to the Messiah coming were in a good place. But those who were not, which is the majority of the people, we're in a very bad place. That is the condition of the, of the wedding attendees. They were not looking forward to the coming of the Messiah. And so there was nothing for them to celebrate. They were in a very terrible condition. They were like those at a wedding without wine. Just a little side note that I need to get out of the way. This is real fermented wine. No matter how much you want to get around it, you can't get around the fact that the Bible says that Jesus turned the wine, turned the, the, the water into fermented wine. <laughs> the word used for wine here literally means wine, not grape juice. 
you know. And the fact that they ran out of wine means, believe it or not, they were drinking it. And not only that, but Jesus himself will turn the water into really good wine. That's kind of shocking at first, isn't it? And this wine does have the power to intoxicate if you wrongly drink too much of it. And we know this was that type of wine because Jesus brought out the best wine for last, which means it was better. (laughs) It wasn't the lesser type of drink. Now, it wasn't as fermented as today, but it was still fermented nonetheless. J.C. Ryle said this, If our Lord Jesus Christ actually worked a miracle in order to supply wine at a marriage feast, it seems to me impossible to prove that drinking wine is sinful. Now we stand rightly against the abuse of wine, don't we? The abuse of wine is terrible, it's destructive, and it has ruined many families. The abuse of wine is sinful. One pastor I listened to warned against the danger of depreciating good gifts over potential abuse of them, such as wine. Listen to what he said. He said that sex, like wine, is a good gift from God that can be abused. But that does not mean it is bad in itself or that we malign it as sinful in itself. Instead, wine in the Bible, when used in proper context, refers to God's blessing. Jesus' mother responds to the problem by going to Jesus and suggesting he do something about it. Well, that's a good idea, isn't it? The mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now we need to understand that Mary is not sharing gossip with Jesus. She's she's not just telling him this information. Mary is telling Jesus, you need to do something about this. This is a problem. An important question to ask is, what is Mary expecting of Jesus to do, right? What, What is she really expecting here? Some think Mary is expecting for Jesus to do a miracle based on past experiences, right? Some people think that Jesus throughout his life was like disappearing or floating on the air, flying away, doing all these amazing miraculous things. But it actually says here, this is the first miracle that he performs. So this is likely, what that means is likely this is the first miracle he performs, right? Now it is possible that Mary is asking Jesus to do a miracle based on simply on the knowledge of who Jesus was that the angel had told her about before his birth. Perhaps she says, now is the time for you to come out. Now is the time for you to show who you are. Now is the time for you to do something that would be beneficial and good, perhaps. It is also possible that Mary is simply calling on Jesus to use his resourcefulness, which she has found likely to be really helpful in times past. And it is possible that Joseph at this point is dead. And it is possible that being the firstborn son that he has had to be really resourceful and has had to help her out. And very possible that he has been very resourceful and very helpful. And so where would she go but to Jesus at this time? In any case, Jesus responds to his mother's request to fix the problem surprisingly By giving her a gentle rebuke. In verse 4. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, does it surprise you at all that Jesus calls her woman? 
What does he mean by this? It sounds really disrespectful. And kids, do not call your mother woman, no matter how old you are. Even if you're 42 years old, don't call your mother woman. But the term used here is not the term one would usually use to indicate the affection of a son towards a mother. But neither is the term mean or rude or disrespectful. In fact, it's incredibly hard to find an English equivalent to this word. Some translations render it mother dear, but that really doesn't work very well either. And this is the ter- same term that Jesus used on the cross in John 19:26 when he spoke of his mother and providing for her needs. So why might Jesus call her woman like this? I think Jesus calls her woman in order to indicate that there is a separation in their relationship from what it used to be. As far as their relationship goes, things are not going to be the way they used to be. As he enters public ministry, they're not going to have the same type of relationship they had before. He has a mission to do. And his relationship with his mother is now taking second to his greater mission. And it is always subordinate to what he has to do. Then Jesus goes on to ask his mother an equally surprising question in response to her request. What does this, your request, meaning, have to do with me? In other words, what concern does this have to do with you or me? Or why do you even involve me? He is asking, what does your request have to do with me or my purpose that I have come to do? He is making it clear that she has no claims over her, over him, based on her motherly privileges. Jesus is declaring his freedom from any human agenda, no matter how great. No human agent will set the agenda, no matter how significant they are in his life. Imagine if Jesus did let people set his agenda. Well, we would have all the food in the world we wanted. We would have every disease cured. Rome would be overthrown many, many years ago. And all humanity would have died and gone to hell. Jesus explains the reason for the distance he maintains between his mother and himself as being because of the cross. When he says, my hour has not yet come. Whenever Jesus uses this phrase, he's referring to the cross that is coming ahead of him. Every single time. You could rephrase this as, my time has not yet come to display my glory. So the reason Jesus maintains his distance from his mother is because he has a purpose to do, he has a plan, and everything else needs to subordinate itself to that plan. John 7, verse 30, for instance, we are told that they tried to seize him, yet no one laid hands on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. They couldn't kill him. (laughs) They couldn't put him to death because his hour had not yet come. In other words, he refused to allow for his ministry to be a response to any human scheduling or agenda, no matter how important they were, the person, the mother, no matter who they were but rather his ministry would be dictated by his father's will and his father's timing. His one and only responsibility is the father's will. He has a single-minded purpose in his life to do what the father has called him to do and fulfill his mission. 
and it was not time to display his glory before the world. So what does this mean for Mary? Mary must recognize that she does not have any special privileges for salvation because of her relationship with the Messiah. Even his mother must come to Jesus by faith like everyone else. She has no special track to the Messiah. Mary needs to learn to approach Jesus like everyone else by faith because she is a sinner who needs a Savior. And the same thing is true with every single one of us. We must come to Jesus the way he has prescribed. That is the only way of salvation, through Christ alone, by faith alone, and his finished work alone. In fact, everywhere Mary appears throughout the course of Jesus' ministry, Jesus is very careful to do something. He, he establishes the distance between him and his mother. Every time you see him talk about his relationship with his mom, he establishes the distance they have between them. And that's not mean to act like this, is it? It's not mean for Jesus to talk like this. For on the cross, he would make provision for her in a number of ways. Not only through John taking care of her, but also for her salvation. So it was necessary that he do the Father's will. Imagine how incredibly difficult this would have been for Mary to receive. Imagine helping your son walk, feeding your son, taking care of him. Now you're going to have to no longer see him that way as you formerly did, but as your Messiah. His mission is now going to take precedence, for it is much more important. And perhaps this is what is meant when she was told that a sword will pierce her own soul too, in Luke 2, verse 35. And we should honor her for bearing this sword and this difficulty. But how incredibly wrong it is for the Roman Catholic Church and those who think like them to assert from this passage that her intercession is what motivates Jesus' saving work. Many amazingly, will use this as a basis for why you should pray to her. They think it argues that she can intercede for them as if she was on par with Jesus. But what instead this argues is that Mary cannot control Jesus. She has no power over him. And instead, Jesus rebukes her for thinking that she can in a gentle way. And one more thing. In verse 12 that we don't get to today, Jesus spent time after the wedding with his brothers, meaning that Mary did have children. She was not a perpetual virgin. So moving on, <laughs> Jesus' mother gives a proper faith-filled response to Jesus' rebuke in verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This is a response of faith. This is saying, I'm going to leave it in Jesus' hands. He can do whatever he wants. And he know, she knows what Jesus can do. So she says, do whatever he tells you to do. This is persevering faith. This is what faith that perseveres looks like. It looks like saying, Jesus can do whatever he's going to do. I'm going to leave it in his hands. I'm going to trust him. And this is what every one of us should look like. This is a model of what faith looks like. She therefore demonstrates what persevering faith that honors the Lord looks like. And such faith is rewarded by Jesus. So what is most important about this background is the miracle, and the, to the miracle that we're going to witness, is not Mary, 
but what it tells us about Jesus. His rebuke here tells us that Jesus has an important, important mission to do. And that mission is what he is going to accomplish, and nothing can stand in that way. And your salvation depends on this. Praise God for his obedience. Now all of this was the background. Now we come to the miracle. The miracle is primary, is the primary place where we see the glory of God manifested through Jesus Christ. In verses 6 through 10. We are told that the instruments Jesus uses to contain the, the wine for the miracle were actually originally used for the purification rites. We see that in verse 6. Now we need to understand that the Jewish people were very concerned about cleanliness. And it wasn't just physical cleanliness, it was spiritual cleanliness that they're really concerned about. And they would do everything they could in order to um, make it clear that God's people were supposed to be clean. And so one of these regulations was for water to be poured over their hands of every guest. And this water had to come from vessels that were that promoted cleanliness. And these jars were such vessels. In fact, in Mark 7, verse 3, 3, we read that the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. And you can imagine how much water they needed in order to wash the hands of the people. Uh, this, these six water jars would have contained a lot of water. If you do the math, it would have been 100 to 150 gallons of water. Now, the truth is that we need to understand here is that these purification rites could not purify anybody. Do you understand that? They couldn't purify anybody. They had no ability to purify. The water in these stone jars could not change anyone's hearts or fix anyone's problems. And many of them thought it could. So in verse 7 through 10, Jesus manifests his glory by turning the water into wine. So Jesus orders his ser the servants there to, fi to fill the pitchers with water and then to draw water out of the pitcher. And when they do this, what comes out of the pitchers is wine. <laughs> Jesus amazingly turns the water into wine. And the head steward confirms the miracle, which I'm sure he did with delight because he was probably um, the, one mo the one responsible to make sure they had enough wine. And so he, I'm sure, is delighted. <laughs> this is an amazing miracle. But the real important question is this. Do you see God's glory? Verse 11 tells us that the purpose of this miracle is that you see the glory of God. And I do not want you to miss it. So how do the, the sign that is performed here show them uh, manifest the glory of God. How does it do that? Well, I can say there are at least three ways where we see the glory of God manifest stood in this sign. First, the miracle shows that Jesus has the power to save. Changing the water into wine shows us that Jesus can save. It shows us that he has power. It shows us that he can cleanse us. Right? If we are ever to be saved, we need to be cleansed. And I think that's the reason he used the purification jars to show us that he's the one who cleanses. And he's the one that has the power to cleanse us from our sin. We need him to cleanse us from our sin. He can replace the external with the internal. He can turn rebellious sinners into saints. 
He has the power to do this. It also shows that he can replace the old covenant with a better new covenant. He can replace the shadow with the reality. Not only that, but the miracle also shows us that he is the true bridegroom who provides for the needs of the bride. Not only can he save us, but he does provide salvation. Where the former groom failed, that is each one of us in a sense, Jesus does not fail. And he provides for our needs not with wine, but with his own blood. His blood is the provision that makes us and gives us something to celebrate about. So he does not only tell us he loves us, but he shows us he loves us. And the quality of wine shows us his provision, doesn't he? He says, you always bring out the best wine first and then give the lesser wine later. And so we see the quality of God's provision in the fact that the best wine was brought out later. Jesus gives us the best wine. Jesus provides us with the best provision. And that's what he gives us through his son, Jesus Christ. We have the very best. We also see that he gives us the, the greatest quantity of provision. The stone jars filled to the brim, as we have already mentioned, would have delivered about 100 to 150 gallons. What, what we see here is that Jesus' provision overflows. There is no bottom to the well. There is no bottom to his grace and his mercy and his love. You are loved with a bottomless love with a greater love that we can ever, never comprehend if we are in Christ Jesus. He has abundant provision for our needs. As Jesus said, I have come that they may have life and have it abundantly. In this way, he would bring the joy to the celebration. He is the joy to the celebration. He gives us a reason to rejoice today. You know, you might say, wherever Jesus goes, the party goes when you're in Christ Jesus. And so we are supposed to rejoice and delight in him. We are supposed to celebrate. Do you know that? We are supposed to celebrate. And finally, the miracle gives us a glimpse at our future celebration that awaits us. There is a banquet awaiting us, right? What Jesus accomplished, one day we're going to see the fullness of it. One day we're going to experience the fullness of it in his kingdom. And here we see a little glimpse of that fullness of the kingdom that awaits us. A little foretaste of it. And is turning the water into wine. And in some ways, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we're doing, aren't we? We're seeing a little glimpse of what awaits us and we're celebrating, anticipating. And by the way, that's what we need to be doing as God's people. We need to be looking forward, anticipating the return of Christ when we will celebrate all that he has accomplished for us for eternity. Revelation 19 verse 9 says this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Alexander McLaren writes this, Jesus Christ keeps the best till the last. His gifts become sweeter every day. No time can cloy, and I had to look that up, means sicken or nauseate them, Advancing years make them more precious and more necessary. The end is better in this course than the beginning. And when life is over and we pass into the heavens, the word will come to our lips with surprise and with thankfulness as we find how much better it is 
better it all is than we had ever dreamed it should be. Thou hast kept the good wine until now. The result was that some were able to see his glory, and those who saw it believed. We are told, and his disciples believed in him. Now, of course, they could not see the fullness of his glory. They were just beginning to see it, but they were beginning to see it. Their faith would continue to grow, but they were beginning to see the glory of God. These were the five disciples that he started off with in John chapter 1. If you see his glory, you will repent and you will believe as well. The question is, do you see his glory? Do you believe this? Do you believe that he is powerful to save? Do you believe that he sufficiently provides everything you need for salvation? Do you believe that a, that a future is coming where his people will be with him forever? Do you believe that Jesus is all you need? Is Jesus all that thrills your soul? <laughs> now, there are many present who experienced the miracle and benefited from it in some ways, but most failed to see the glory of God manifested. And those who did missed everything. And I want to remind you that many that day drank. They drank of that wine. They, in some ways, benefited from the miracle. Pretty much everybody did. But there were only a few who truly benefited. Only a few saw the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And isn't this true of what happens every time the message is preached, every time we gather together. There are many who benefit from the fellowship, many who benefit from the results of what Christ is doing and the accomplishments that he is doing, but only a few see the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ. Do you see the glory of God manifested in Jesus Christ? I fear that some of us will come week after week and will in some ways benefit from the church. In some ways we will leave happy and fed, maybe with physical food, maybe with just a, a relationship that we have and people that we are connected with. Maybe just the goodness that comes from being in the church and with God's people. But I fear that some of us will fail to see the manifested glory of God in Jesus Christ and will fail to believe and be saved. This passage gives me great hope for preaching. It sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? Just like the disciples, some are going to hear and some are going to see and some are going to believe. And it's ultimately about what God intends to do whenever his word is proclaimed. We are to work hard, we are to do our best, but ultimately everything of value depends on God opening up our eyes and our ears to see his glory. Look to Jesus today. Ask Jesus to enable you to see his glory so that you will be saved. So I hope you, like the disciples, don't miss the point of the miracle. I hope you begin to see the glory of God. My prayer is that you will say, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was blind, but now I see. Let's pray. Dear Father, Lord, we thank you, God, for coming to us. We thank you for manifesting your glory 
before our eyes. God, I pray for those who have seen your glory already. I pray that we would see your glory again. I pray that you would increase our understanding of your glory. Lord, may you fill us today with your word. And may your word become to us our food through which we might live for you, through which we might rejoice and celebrate in our great Savior. Lord, we thank you for your amazing grace. We thank you for amazing goodness in giving us your word today. And we thank you for your provision that you've given to us on the cross. Lord, your word says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. You said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Lord, I pray that today would be the day of salvation. I pray that you would save today. I pray that you'd be pleased to magnify your name and to deliver people from your judgment, deliver people from your wrath, and into your favor. We thank you for what you're going to do. And we thank you for magnifying your glory before us. In Jesus' name, amen.